I'll tell you, JB, I go around the country lately and they bring up JB. Where's JB? Merchant Marine Academy, I got it again. JB's got to come see a game. In this case, though, on Friday night uh, before, you know, Merchant Marine and Maritime on Saturday, I asked Nate Milne, who is, I think, one of the best experts on this subject, when he hears your name, well, here, you'll see it. Coach, when I mention the name James Baker, what are the first things that come to mind about the, uh, James Baker? Uh, elite statesman. Ooh. Um, Ooh. In every sense of the word, uh, he embodies that statesman uh, attitude of sophistication and uh, intelligence, just like every Hobart alum out there. So you're telling me my co-host, I'm in the presence of greatness across that screen uh, when I'm like next to him in that if box. I feel as though when, whenever I turn in, it permeates through the screen that James Baker is somebody special. Sometimes he picks against you though. Is he still all that when he does that? Uh, it's, it's all right. You know, he's, uh, he's allowed to pick and choose who they want and uh, we can't win them all. So we, we understand when people pick against us, um, you know, it tarnishes uh, his degree. And uh, I talked to the new president about removing his degree when he picked against us. Um, and, and so we'll see, we'll see where that goes. If he was standing here tonight, would you hug him or hit him after picking Johns Hopkins earlier today? No, we give him a big hug. Okay, you know what I mean? We got to uh, forgive and forget. Well, forgive and forget. I, I picked Hopkins too, but all right. I'm a union I, guy, I, so what do I know? No doubt about it. And I'm just happy for everybody watching. You know it's a big time game when, when Frank Rossi's in town and he snuck onto our sideline somehow. Uh, and so you just know when, when in the huddle is here, uh, this is a big time matchup here in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Security did chase me, but Mike Falk did uh, put a Gave good word it. in for me, so <laughs> we're okay. Uh, and you know what, I'm going to give you, in the interview later that people might uh, see or on Twitter, uh, we didn't give you a chance for any shout outs. You're a kid at heart. I'm going to give you the uh, shout outs. It's always, uh, this was the second biggest game in Allentown this weekend. My eight-year-old son, Matthew, uh, has an undefeated flag season going, yeah. and so he's got a big one tomorrow morning. So always Matthew, Nicholas, uh, and then my wife, Kristen, and, and everybody in Jamestown, everybody at Hobart College. Go Statesman next week. Well, we'll see how that goes. Thank you, bud. Appreciate it. Thank you. Wow. I am in the presence of greatness here. I, I mean, greatness. Nate Milne is telling me what, like, you should be like on this pedestal. If we put you on a pedestal, we wouldn't no, be able to see you in these boxes. But I mean, I mean, how, how do you feel? No, that's a that's a that's a classic Hobart move right there. Basically, making <laughs> saying certain things that, in one way, could be interpreted as a positive, but on the flip side, is also an actual little dig. You know, I think he's kind of messing with me a little bit, Frank. Just a little bit. I mean, I appreciate. Nate, he is a few years younger than I am. I am the elder statesman out of this deal, and I think he's he's sort of like a little brother. He's trying to he's trying to poke at me a little bit because I'm not there, and and you were, and eh. there's truth there. There's truth. Um, you know, he just got off winning a, a big, big game. I mean, one of his best coaching performances Huge ever. Game. And yeah. he had that to say about you. I mean, you should be honored. I don't think there's digs there. I think that's just honoring. The greatness that is JB. That's what I think.
Well, well I don't know about yeah, I, I don't know about my greatness, but I will say that that, especially that defensive coaching performance against what was previously the highest scoring team in the nation, almost sixty points a game, to hold them to what six points. I mean, yeah, that might have been one of the best coaching performances of of, of uh, Nate Milne's career. So, hey, the Mules are back. We thought they might be in trouble, but they're still in the conversation, and they haven't given up that Centennial Conference title just yet. Well, we're going to look at playoff races, Pool C races, which he doesn't want to talk about. It's Pool A or bust right now for Muhlenberg, as far as he's concerned. Yeah. He's right. And yep. a whole lot more. It's the Crunch Time episode of Season 14 of In the Huddle. Okay, so a few things here. Uh, we were talking about Nate Milne. If you did not see our interview with him and others uh, f- from uh, his uh, team, uh, was it was Spencer Karen and Michael Nikolsky uh, in those uh, interviews, you'll want to go and watch uh, our Twitter feed uh, from Saturday morning uh, when we posted those. Uh, Sunday. No, that was Saturday because that was a Friday game. Friday night. That was a Friday yeah. night lights. You're right. Which is yeah. probably the final time we get to say that this season, actually. And we'll keep that in because I do want to make that point. I don't think we have any more Friday night games, really, that I can uh, find. But if there are any, uh, we'll try to get to some of them if they do involve teams that are in yeah. the conversation here. Uh, but, you know, it does mean that this, this was probably my last opportunity to get to multiple games this season. So we've got some real decisions to make going on from here. Now, I will say that after that Friday night, I went to Merchant Marine on Saturday. Again, interviews online. And uh, I was given the, this is Tag Off, Coach Toop mustache shirt, as my microphone gets in the way there. And uh, as uh, the person that gave it to me said, you're probably uh, been waiting for this one. And in fact, I have been. I've been waiting for this for a while, and I appreciate them giving that to me. Uh, You didn't show up, so you don't get one. Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> Two out of ten on that one. That's wow. what I say. That, that's low. <laughs> that's low. And then, uh, well, I, I get a two out of ten on the next one because I went to Maritime on Saturday and uh, we got to see Gallaudet win. And it was great. And it, it, one of the things that you notice in the Merchant Marine interviews is that the wind... Yeah. That. That right there. So when I got to the other side... Uh, you know, across the bridge, basically, over to SUNY Maritime, that wind was getting ferocious because we actually did get hit with a storm about 45 minutes later uh, after I left. And so a huge rainstorm came through. The wind was uh, foretelling of it. But what it did was it knocked out our entire audio track from the video we shot. And it it, it really was depressing to me because we had some great interviews with a couple of players and uh, their coach, Coach Goldstein, and we lost it basically. Now we've sent this over to Gallaudet because we may be able to actually, because they did sign their answers, transcribe their answers at the very least. Who cares what the hell I had to say in these interviews? I care about what they had to say in those interviews. No as, kidding. As you should. And so it is possible maybe to get view with flavor of 
what they said. So we're working uh, with Sam Atkinson, the SID over at Gallaudet, to see uh, what we can do. If not, we're going to try to work to get those uh, three uh, fine gentlemen on our show this week, later on. So that's that. Now, we haven't decided where I'm going yet. I have some ideas, JB, of where to go this week. Let's talk about that on the other side of crunch time, though. This is that time where we let you have a 30,000-foot view of what the week that we just left looked like to you. Why change pace here? Go right ahead. Well, the first thing that I thought of when I was watching uh, the games this weekend is that here we are in the middle of October, and lo and behold, all of a sudden there's this thing called the weather. It's not snowing yet. It's not super cold yet, but yet there was still some torrential rainstorms that affected games. And then, unfortunately, as we sometimes forget, that as much as we love to cheer on our teams and get excited about this, at the end of the day, these guys are 18 to 22-year-old kids. And sometimes they make mistakes on big stages and in big games. And you know what? That's life. And that's football. And it's not something to shy away from or try to push down or hide or it's just one of those things that happens. We saw it in the Ithaca Hobart game. You know, I'm sure poor David Krusen would love to have a chance to not have dropped the ball when he went back to throw that potentially final pass. You know, it's it's not going to define his career. He'll probably forget about it in a couple of years. We'll forget about it in a couple of years, but it happens. And so, you know, it's just one of those things. And then at the end of the day, I think also too, while there are some people banging on the wall, like, why is my team not this or not that? And the other thing, you know what? We're getting close to the end of the deal here. There's four more weeks of the season left. There's only about 20 undefeated teams out of 239. So if you're winning games, you're going to have a chance to play some extra football. If you're not, I don't know what to tell you, man. <laughs> so um, that's my perspective now. I think um, week seven was a good one. I think week eight is going to be a little less interesting. It's kind of the dog days of the football season, but it's going to set up a really awesome week 9, 10, and 11, and then into the postseason. I don't know. I, I, I got some games that I, I'm looking at right now, and I'm saying to myself, boy, these are some better games in terms of the gravity of them uh, than Week 7. So we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more, and we will also talk about uh, the platform situation uh, that you're alluding to in terms of the mistake made. Uh, and not so much, we don't really want to talk about the mistake so much as what led to it, and what we learn from it ultimately, and the way we should be handling it as adults when it comes down to it. You'll understand what I mean as we get through crunch time. Yeah, handling things as adults in 2021 isn't exactly gone as smoothly as we would have liked on a number of levels. Well, you're talking to a 45-year-old wearing a guy's mustache on his t-shirt right now, so I'm not sure what authority I am, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to you know, pass as adults for I got the a big time G being. Grove City, who is very much in the conversation and will be in this crunch time coming up right now. So without further ado, let's go to crunch time for week seven of the fall 2021 Division Three college football season. 
Was that your seven on the other side of this crunch time start? <laughs> okay, let's just let's let's roll this. Let's start with this one. Yeah, one one of the games I attended, MIT at Merchant Marine Academy, and uh, we'll look at first. MIT, boy, this ball seemed to be popping out around the two-yard line. Jonathan Berger did get the 16-yard touchdown pass from Chris Mock, but I'll tell you, it could have easily been a turnover uh, by MIT. It's ruled touchdown, 7-0 MIT. Then uh, Brian McGovern, about five minutes later, gets a four-yard touchdown run to equalize the game at seven apiece for Merchant Marine. The teams would trade scores then in the second quarter. Dennis Gastel had a seven-yard touchdown pass from Chris Mock. That trimmed the USMMA lead to 17-14 about midway through the second quarter. But four minutes later, Talson Smith gets a 27-yard touchdown pass from Ian Blankenship to make it 24-14 Merchant Marine. And to start the third quarter, Blankenship gets his five-yard touchdown run untouched into the end zone thanks to the offensive line. 34-14 Merchant Marine Academy. That really put the game away. Final score, 56-34. Blankenship. 303 total yards, two passing, two rushing touchdowns. Uh, Cesar Gonzalez, also two rushing touchdowns. Let's not forget about him, who we talked to. Uh, Merchant Marine offense, 568 total yards, and their best start, 6-0 since the 1968 season. Then we have Wesleyan at Tufts, and Wesleyan took an early 12-0 lead in this game before Tufts would try to fight back. Three minutes into the second quarter, Tufts' Michael Berluti, the quarterback, gets a 35-yard touchdown run. It trims the Wesleyan lead to 12-7. About a minute later, though, Wesleyan's Logan Tomlinson gets a 27-yard pass from David Estevez to make it 19-7 Wesleyan. After Wesleyan field goal, Tufts drew closer, and really about midway through the second quarter, it's Philip Lutz with a 61-yard touchdown pass from Michael Berluti, 22-14 Wesleyan. And then just before halftime, Chase Mangini gets a two-yard pass from Berluti to make it 22-21 Wesleyan, and that would be the halftime score. Now remember something, Tufts winless, Undefeated Wesleyan coming into this game. Wesleyan uh, tries to draw distance here. 8.37 left third quarter. Ezra Jennifer with a 10-yard touchdown pass from Ashton Scott to make it 29-21 Wesleyan. But three minutes later, Jackson Butler with a 13-yard touchdown pass from Berluti. The two-point conversion pass, good, makes it 29-29. Then Tufts takes the lead about a minute 40 later. Takes the play. Throws to the running back Johnson. He's got room to the edge. Makes a move on the man and cuts into the end zone. That is a touchdown. Tyler Johnson on the catch. The Tufts Jumbos have taken the lead in the second half against the 4-0 Wesleyan Cardinals. 35-29 Tufts. The kick failed. Keep that in mind. As David Estevez gets a four-yard touchdown run with five minutes left in the fourth quarter, and they get their extra point to make it 36-35 Wesleyan. That would be the final scoring. You know, great effort by Tufts. The Jumbos really uh, should have been in this game by at least the win-loss records, but they're playing a lot better than 0-5, that's for sure, at 36-35. Estevez with 474 total yards, one passing, two rushing touchdowns. Great day for him, but Berluti also. 418 total yards, four passing, and one rushing touchdowns. Incredible job. Let's also go to Gallaudet at Maritime. We talked a little bit about what happened earlier with our interviews, but... Heading into the fourth quarter, Gallaudet held just a 16-9 lead. It looked like they would extend that lead. Second to go from the one, Timmel Benton rushes for a loss. It's a fumble forced by Maritime and recovered by Patrick Konopka at the Maritime three. 
but their defense did force a punt in seven plays later. On first and goal from the Maritime 8, Mika Harvey rushes for an eight-yard touchdown to make it 23-9, Gallaudet with 7.23 left in the fourth quarter. After an interception by Jack Gray, his second of the game, Gallaudet put the game away with this big first down you're seeing. Benton finds Harvey for 28 yards to the six-yard line. They were able to kneel it out from there, and Gallaudet remains undefeated at 4-0 officially for D3 purposes with a 23-9 yeah. win. Benton, 182 total yards, one rushing touchdown. Gray, those two interceptions. And David Keough with 153 yards and one passing touchdown. I know you want to bring that up a little bit, talk about what we mean by officially for Division Three purposes and also talk about Region 1. Well, as far as Region 1 goes, I mean, first off, credit to the NESCAC. We, we haven't given them a ton of coverage yet, but that Wesleyan Tusk game has been out, was outstanding. The Jumbos, just one of those seasons where they just come up a little short here and there. Certainly a really good team. Daniel Estevez, though, almost 500 yards of total offense, Frank. I think I might be foreshadowing something a little later on in the show, uh, giving him a shout-out. But Anna Maria beating Alfred State 28-17. to It's looking to me, Frank, that in the ECFC, that the two teams sort of jockeying for that Pool A bid are, are between the AMCATs and the Bison there. Uh, Tabora of um, Jose Tabora, the quarterback of Wilkes University, even though they ended up on the short side of a loss to, to Widener this weekend, did set the school um, passing yard touchdown with over 60, 60 touchdowns in his career. Outstanding. Endicott Husson was a game that we picked. We thought that Endicott would win this one bigly, <laughs> but they only hung on for a seven point win. Um, and so interesting stuff going on in the CCC. I think it's the Gulls title to lose, but they have a big game this weekend against some other birds from Newport, Rhode Island. Should be a great game. That's one of those games that I kind of am thinking to myself, that's a big week eight game, but we'll talk more about that later. Johns Hopkins in region two uh, against Muhlenberg. And the Centennial Conference showdown on Friday night was really good. Uh, in the first half, though, it was really no offense in terms of the scoreboard, at least. First, let's look at the attempt at a field goal by Johns Hopkins uh, from the 13-yard line. So a 30-yard attempt. John Krill's field goal is blocked by Matt Papa for Muhlenberg. And so we're still scoreless at that point. In the second quarter, midway through, Spencer Karen blocks a punt and picks it up himself and runs it in from 21 yards out. 7-0, Muhlenberg leads, and that would be the halftime score. And to hear Kieran talk about what he was thinking at that point, go to our interviews on Twitter. Third quarter, 4.50 left, Thomas Jenkins, 28-yard touchdown pass from Michael Nikowski, and that gave Muhlenberg a 14-0 lead, and he really had to start believing in the Mules at this point because of that lead and what they were able to do to Hopkins defensively all night. But finally, with four seconds left in the third quarter, Danny Wolf gets a one-yard touchdown run to make it 14-6. After the two-point conversion pass by Wolf, or to Wolf, I think it was, failed. And I, I can't answer why they went for two in that situation. We'll just go with it here. 8.03 left in the fourth quarter. Ethan Brader puts it away from Michael Nikowski, a four-yard touchdown pass to make it 21-6. That's the final score. And both teams now at 5-1 and 4-1. and and Susquehanna right now with the true lead in the Centennial Conference. They've got some big games to come. 
Karen, 21-yard punt block return for touchdown. Game high, seven tackles. Zikowski, two passing touchdowns on the night. But let's actually stop there for a second let you uh, chime in. We, we kind of alluded to earlier, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but this was probably one of the best performances coaching-wise that we've seen Nate Milne do in his relatively short head coaching career. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, all the statistics and everything pointed to this being a Hopkins blowout of a team that had lost a game to your sinus that Hopkins dropped 60-plus points on two weeks before. So where did this come from? And, you know, Coach Milne and and, um, you know, and, and company really dialed up a, a game plan that, that took Ryan Stevens completely out of his comfort zone shut down these receiving threats and everything and just really one one with some bare bones you know blocks and tackles and i mean what what can you say it was a great performance amen to that let's go to to the liberty league which was kind of a slop fest uh this game because of the weather as you brought up earlier uh hobart hosting rpi all parents allowed uh in uh, the first quarter, a minute 20 left in that quarter, Rayshon Boswell at the Boz. Comes back right, has the first down, takes off, there goes Boswell. Good night, 30, 20, 10, Wildcat Boz, touchdown Hobart. 49 yards. It's a 49-yard touchdown run to give Hobart a 7-0 lead. Now, RPI would add a 22-yard field goal from Connor McDougal in their next drive, and Hobart had trouble moving the ball in their next drive after that field goal, but this special team's mistake by RPI gave the Statesman new life, which was after Tobias Weffering's 30-yard punt, uh, Muff at the 27 was recovered by Chris Tumba at RPI's 22-yard line. That led to a 21-yard Rob DiGregorio field goal and a 10-3 halftime lead for Hobart. The third quarter would be scoreless, and in the fourth quarter, RPI seemed to score the equalizer. Fourth and four, George Marinopoulos pass complete to Vinny McDonald for four yards to the house. With 3.39 left, it's 10-9, but the conditions did make the kicking game an adventure. Fight in the corner of the end zone, bad snap, kick is blocked! It's blocked! Ball's bouncing loose, and Hobart keeps the lead! The kick is blocked with 3.39 left to play! And Diego Fernandez's kick attempt is blocked. 10-9, Hobart still leading. RPI would get the ball back with 106 left. Two plays later, George Marinopoulos intercepted by Brian Aguilar and makes it the end of the game, 10-9. Who would have seen that small score coming, to be honest with you, in favor of Hobart? Boswell, 18 rushes, 149 yards in the touchdown we showed. Marinopoulos, 11 for 20 passing, 57 yards. One passing touchdown, two interceptions. That weather obviously had a lot to do with at least his first half woes and a tough day for RPI uh, losing by one point. Let's stay in Region 2 here for a minute here before we go back to you as Grove City, who you're wearing on your t-shirt, visited St. Vincent. And St. Vincent would start this game on fire on both sides of the ball. Midway through the second quarter, this happens. Wide margin. And this one off the mark on a third and 18. It's intercepted by Polonese. He's got a convoy to the 10-5 touchdown. Jonas Polonese with his second pick six of the season. And St. Vincent up 16-7. And that's jo- Joannis Polonese, I believe, with a 34-yard interception return for touchdown. It's 17-7 St. Vincent. 
Grove City would get a touchdown before halftime to make that halftime score 17-14 St. Vincent, but they would return the favor early in the third quarter. A minute later, a familiar duo connected for the second time on the day as Cody Gustafson gets a 65-yard touchdown pass from Josh East. Now it's 24-21 St. Vincent. The fourth quarter, it belonged to not just Grove City, but running back Clayton Parrish, who already had one rushing touchdown in the game. First, a minute 13 into the fourth quarter, Parrish gets a two-yard touchdown run, and that gives Grove City a 28-27 lead in the game. Then Parrish, with 3.30 left, gets this 13-yard touchdown run, virtually untouched, 35-27 Grove City. And then to end things, 1.16 left, Parrish gets a 12-yard touchdown run, 41-27 Grove City. Uh, the score would be 41-29 because Jaden Pratt would return the ensuing extra point 98 yards to make the final score that 41-29 score. But Clayton Parrish, four touchdowns on 25 rushes for 143 yards. Brady Walker from St. Vincent, 22 for 39, 235, a passing and a rushing touchdown. Good try by St. Vincent indeed, who just couldn't get there. And let's complete Region 2 with Utica at Brockport. After starting the game with a 24-yard Nate Widgett field goal, Brockport expanded their first half lead. First, with Jolly Code getting a 13-yard touchdown pass from Jack Cheshire, 9.44 left in the second quarter to make it 10-0 Brockport. Then with nine seconds left in that quarter, Imhotep Cromer, I always uh, trip on this name, Imhotep Cromer with a seven-yard touchdown run. It's 17-0 Brockport. But Utica would come back in the second half. First, Nate Palmer would get an 11-yard touchdown pass from Sonny Badina to make it 17-7 Brockport. Then Badina would get his own two-yard run with 13.50 left in regulation and make it 17-14 Brockport. Jaleco, though, would put the game out of reach with a one-yard touchdown run with 9.11 left make it 24-14. A safety later would make the score 26-14 Brockport. Jalay Code, in those conditions, again, made it uh, 38 rushes for 167 yards day with a rushing and passing touchdown. And Sonny Badina for Utica had 166 total yards, including one rushing and one passing touchdown. Got to give it to Brockport's defense again, though, with three interceptions. Region 2, which with more teams to talk about now because of the pack being shifted into there, probably one of its uh, most exciting weekends we've seen in a few weeks at least. Yeah, and even the, the Salisbury-Rowan game at sort of the top of the other region scores is a little closer early on than, than we may have thought. Um, Ithaca was also in a rain deluge up at St. Lawrence, but their offense didn't slow down at all. They were still able to gain over 400 yards. Um, Michael Roche, who we had on the show from Susquehanna, five passing touchdowns and the 47-7 win over. And going back to pronunciation 101, Frank, is it Gettysburg or Gettysburg? Because I heard the announcers for the Riverhawks say Gettysburg, but I've always it's said Gettysburg, Gettysburg address, right? The Gettysburg address. They said Gettysburg the whole time on that broadcast. So what do I know? Kane and Alfred have won three straight uh, in their since conference play has started, so they're on a little bit of a roll here. And TCNJ surprisingly outgained Kane. Outgained. See what I did there? Yeah, it's 365 yards to 132, and still somehow the Cougars won that game by almost two touchdowns. And hey, Grove City, best start since 1997. Wow. Frank and I were a lot younger then. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> yes. 
when we're, when weren't we a lot younger? Uh, anyway, uh, Birmingham yeah, Southern at center in Region Three. Uh, great game here. Center started the game pretty hot as Keenan John gets a two-yard fumble recovery for touchdown. The scoop and score makes it seven to zero in favor of center. Then Sam Murray gets a 27-yard touchdown pass from Trenton Duper. Uh, the extra point fails, so it's 13 to zero center. Later in the first quarter, with 13 seconds left, Birmingham Southern's Brendan Rue gets a 49-yard touchdown pass from Trey Patterson. It's 13-7 center. But that's not all the scoring in the half because Birmingham Southern would get one more from Chris Schuford, though still called Robert in the box. We'll call him Chris. The one-yard touchdown run for Birmingham Southern makes it their lead 14-13. After halftime, center's Trenton Duper gets an 11-yard touchdown run to make it 21-14 center. Go to the fourth quarter, Shuford again. A 5-yard touchdown run makes it 21-21. And then it seemed like Birmingham Southern scored in pairs throughout this game as Trey Patterson gets the next touchdown, a 65-yard touchdown rush, 28-21 Birmingham Southern. Center would get two more chances to tie or win this game, but the second one came with just 3.53 left. It was a 14-play drive, but this is the last play, and it fell short. So, again, the final score, 28-21, Birmingham Southern. As Chris Shuford had 18 rushes, 104 yards, and two touchdowns. Trey Patterson, 309 total yards, a rushing and a passing touchdown. And Duper, 14 for 32, 191 yards, a passing and a rushing touchdown. In the ODAC, what do we say? It became the O-Cardiac, basically. And here's another one of those games that represents it. Shenandoah at Ferrum. And Shenandoah, five minutes of the game, had a touchdown. And will go into motion. It'll flip it into the backfield. First man will miss. They fire it downfield. Catch will be made wide open. And we'll see if anybody can catch him. And nobody will as he falls into the end zone for the touchdown. Caleb Reedy, 74 yards from Brant Butler. It's 7-0 Shenandoah there, and eventually they would add two field goals for a 13-0 lead late in the second quarter. Farron would respond. With 2.28 left in the second quarter, Tsmande Penn, I believe is the correct pronunciation, gets a 71-yard touchdown pass from Titus Jones. 13-7 Shenandoah's lead was cut to. After halftime, Farron would take the lead as Titus Jones would get his own four-yard touchdown run to make it 14-13 Farrum. In the third quarter, Shenandoah's Rashidine Burr Jr. gets a three-yard touchdown run. Now Shenandoah's got the lead back, 20-14. Farrum responds. With the football first down and 10 from the 48 of the Hornets. They're looking to go Ooh. deep to Tamade Pant. Runs on that one for the touchdown. 48 yards. Oh, and Tamade Pant has a chance. Ooh. He does something with it. With 6.03 left, it was 21-20 Farum. With a minute 47 left, Shenandoah took a 23-21 lead with a Patrick Ritchie 24-yard field goal, but Farum in 10 plays in less than two minutes looked to respond for the win. Snaps good, holds good, kick is up, and the kick <laughs> will find its way through the uprights with three seconds left on the game clock. Seth Deep, the freshman kicker, has put the Panthers ahead of Shenandoah. Seth Deaton, a 35-yard field goal is good. 24-23 Ferrum with three seconds left, and that was it. They won by one point and moved to 5-1, and 2-1 in the ODAC. Uh, Deaton, yeah. the game-winning 35-yard field goal, 
he does not get him special teams player of the week. I'll tell you right now for the MVPs of JB, there's a reason for that. You'll see later. Titus Jones, 255 total yards for Ferrum, two passing, one rushing touchdown in the game. Huntingdon hosting Averett. This game we didn't really look at as a close possibility game, but heading late into the third quarter, nope. Huntingdon had an 11-point lead as Landon Cotney gets a 37-yard touchdown run for that 24-13 lead with a minute four left third quarter. Averitt's Bryce Phipso, a three-yard touchdown run three minutes into the fourth quarter, made it 24-19 Huntingdon. Then Averitt takes the lead as Sean Watlington gets an 82-yard touchdown run. 25-24 Averitt, five minutes into the fourth quarter. Landon Cotney, though, helps put the game away. A six-yard touchdown run with 6.38 left gets Huntington back the lead, 30-25. Eventually, after a failed drive by Averitt, Huntington was able to run down the clock to take that a win, 30-25. And Huntington now 4-2, 4-0 in the USA South. That's one of those uh, teams right now that I'm, I'm kind of just penciling in as the winner right now of the USA South, unless something cataclysmic occurs to that team. Bryce Jackson, 20 for 34, 254 yards, two passing touchdowns for Averett. But Landon Cotney, 351 total yards, a passing and two rushing touchdowns, two interceptions. But when you have those kinds of numbers before that, you can get away with those interceptions and win. Finally, Howard Payne at Southwestern, another game we didn't see as being close. Howard Payne took an early 14-point lead. The halftime score was 14-3, Howard Payne. Yet early in the fourth quarter, Southwestern came all the way back to take the lead. Outfield. Whips it down to the corner of the end zone. Touchdown, Pirates! Austin Costilleja cut right where the ball was delivered for a touchdown. And not only a touchdown, but the lead. Could they pull off the upset? Well, Howard Payne with a minute 29 left. Gets a 20-yard touchdown pass from McKinney to Lanier. Another touchdown between those two to make it 21-17 Howard Payne. And the Howard Payne defense came in key to help end the game. It was 21-17 final in favor of Howard Payne. Southwestern outgained Howard Payne, 331 to 293 in yards. McKinney from Howard Payne, though, 16 for 30, 165 yards, passing and a rushing touchdown and an interception. Um, it's a mouthful here, so I'm going to give it to you for the rest of Region 3. Yeah, no, I think in Region 3 we didn't really see any surprises other than the fact that there were a couple of games, particularly between Birmingham Southern and Center, and this and this Huntington Avert game that were a touchdown or less we didn't see that and then Howard Payne who has been supposedly looking for top 10 level votes of recognition for being an undefeated team in the ASC scrapes by with a four-point win against a one-win Southwestern team Sometimes it's not, not, not uh, just scrapes by. They they had to actually come from behind late in that game. So it wasn't like the team sort yeah. of just let their foot off the pedal and you know the, the other team caught up. They were actually behind toward the end of that game. Yeah, so maybe they were a little, reading their own press clippings a little too much or or something. But the Jackets need a little course correct. Otherwise, they could be in trouble down the stretch. Otherwise, one game that really stood out to me, Frank. I mean, as, as bad as I feel for the Warriors, who are really having a tough fall season after a great spring, is uh, this 13-16 to double OT loss to the Lynx at Rhodes. And, you know, on one hand, as, as bad as it stinks for the Warriors, you got to feel happy for the Rhodes faithful because they were, let's see, 0-4 in the spring, uh, not competitive, and they were 1-9 in 2019, and now they've won three out of their last four. 
So they're turning the corner. That's uh, Coach Dan Swanstrom's alma mater. He played football there uh, back in the early 2000s. So good on the Lynx. They're, they're winning some ball games. Good on the Lynx. That's something I'm not, but that's that's a whole other thought. No, me neither. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> if you don't get that joke, folks, we'll explain it later. Maybe not. Uh, in regions four through six, we're going to go through two games, actually, uh, even though you see three on this page, and uh, we'll explain that a little bit more again after crunch time. Uh, Whitewater Oshkosh, which is a huge game for Pool A, Pool C perspective uh, from the WIAC. Uh, this one, yeah. at halftime, Whitewater seemed to be in control, leading 22-7, yet Oshkosh tried to make it a game early in the second half. With 9.04 left third quarter, Trey... Tetzlav gets a 15-yard touchdown pass from Kobe Berghammer to make it 22-13 Whitewater. Whitewater would add a 36-yard Matt Maldonado field goal, but they would put the game away fully later on defense. With 126 left in regulation, Ryan Liska gets a 31-yard interception return for touchdown. The pick six made it 32-13. That's the final in favor of Whitewater, now a perfect 6-0 and 3-0 in the conference as Max Myler gets a 17-for-25 day, that's 68% efficiency, 211 yards, two touchdowns, and also linebacker Ryan Liska, as we talked about there, those two interceptions, including the interception return for touchdown. Lake Forest at Ripon, it was Lake Forest early, up 14-0, but Trey yeah. Stewart and A.J. Jackson weren't satisfied. 551 left in the first half, Trey Stewart gets a nine-yard touchdown run to give Lake Forest a 21-0 lead. Then A.J. Jackson gets a touchdown pass from Trey Stewart, specifically 25 yards of a touchdown pass to make it 28-0, just about a minute 20 later. Uh, later in the game, let's just skip around to the fourth quarter as A.J. Jackson will get a 56-yard touchdown pass from Stewart to make it 42-7. That was your final score. Uh, a game that was a battle of undefeateds goes one way, and it's Lake Forest all the way to go 6-0, 5-0. Uh, they outgained Rippon 399 to 129, and AJ Jackson three receptions, yep. 80 yards, two touchdowns. Three receptions, two touchdowns. AJ Jackson, he's incredible. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know yeah. where Cat found him, but uh, he better uh, you know go back and find more players like him if they do exist at the same place. Yep. And finally, All lacrosse. American. Yep, lacrosse at Platteville. We will show you the lacrosse hundred yard interception or 100 yard kickoff return kickoff. touchdown i should say yep yeah. and this is a record breaker for lacrosse this is all we're going to show you from this game joey stutzman gets 30 rushes for 153 yards and one touchdown in the winning cause for lacrosse and uh, quarterback colin shoots from platteville 36 for 59 453 yards two touchdowns three interceptions he forgets to spike the ball in the final play. We don't want to dwell on it. Again, more later, though, <laughs> on the entirety of this. Let's just go and say 24-23 final. The cross wins that game and moves to 5-1 and 3-0. and Other uh, region yeah. 4-6 to six, uh, things that you want to talk about because we've got plenty of scores to go through here. Well, I think, you know, what we're seeing, um, at least in other parts of the Midwest, I think DePaul is starting to separate itself from the rest of the pack in the NCAC. Um, they're actually an undefeated team. I, I realized sort of after the fact that, oh yeah, their only loss was to FCS Pioneer League Butler. So they're technically an undefeated team in D3. They continue their winning ways. They beat Ohio Wesleyan 24 to seven in that game um, this past Saturday. And then on the on the flip side of all the other games that were going on between uh, region four and six teams, 
Lewis and Clark and Willamette Frank was actually interesting because remember last week's crunch time, we showed a furious comeback for Lewis and Clark that came up a little bit short. And the same thing almost happened to them with Willamette who came back and almost tied or won that game, but they came up two points short. And then finally, all the way out in Southern California, Chapman lowers the boom on previously undefeated Cal Lutheran, making that Skyak race look a little topsy-turvy now. Uh, maybe Redlands is the team to beat there, so we'll have to wait and see. And making our predictions race a little bit topsy-turvy, I think I picked up a game or two on you this week if I had to guess. Uh, we'll check on that on Friday officially, but until that point, we will tell you for now, that's crunch time for week seven of the fall 2021 Division Three college football season. Okay, JB, uh, we got a lot of things to look at here, a lot of extra credit uh, material that you put together. But first, the regular stuff, then we'll talk about a little bit of our speech here for, uh, you know, the whole hiding video scenario uh, it seems like every week we have the speech about hiding videos why are we always why are we always giving why are we always giving speeches to the adults about how they act in very know. unadult ways we'll, we'll talk mm. about that in a minute let's let's talk more first about the the kids that were acting like adults on the field uh and these are genies yeah. week seven mvps uh, interesting situation here. Uh, you have two males and two females on this page. Why don't you explain what's yeah. going on here? Well, I mean, you know, I could have very easily gone with the uh, Pat Coleman. Uh, I think it was Dante Jameson, you know, game ball pick. The the Kane punt returner who had two returns for a touchdown. Um, Deaton, the field goal kicker, or the hero that we mentioned earlier just a few minutes ago. But the fact we had two freshman uh place kickers for king's college Alyssa Accardino and delaney hilferty i think is hopefully i'm pronouncing it correctly two two young women who scored points in an ncaa sanctioned game the first time ever this has ever happened with two different uh women scoring points in a, in a d3 or any sanctioned college football game this felt like a big deal and you know at the end of the day there might be some people that are like oh yeah well they're just backup kickers and they just you know whatever you know what they're still part of the team they're still practicing they were out there they did what they did their job i mean yep. in the springtime better, frankly, better than some male players <laughs> oh yeah for sure and so i give these two a lot of credit you know we talk a lot about you know, with my family and, and girl dad and all that type of thing. But, you know, these these young ladies really should be um, commended for putting themselves out there. It's, you know, this is not an easy thing to just try to get into, you know, the football world. I and mean, we saw that with Sarah Fuller at Vanderbilt and a lot of the um, commentary about her on social media was unfair and pretty sexist because, Oh well, you know, yeah, it was just a, a, a publicity stunt. No, actually, she was a six foot two, Division one scholarship athlete who could actually, you know, kick a kick the crap any out kind of football. ball through. Yeah, yeah, and is probably stronger and more athletic than ninety percent of the guys out there. But that being said, Alyssa Delaney, congratulations, and and really, you know, shout out to the to the Monarchs for putting them in a position to be even out there. I mean, I know we gave a, a special teams player of the week to, um, 
you know, the, the, the starting kicker, uh, per scavenge, um, earlier in the season, but yep. the fact that, you know, he's out there working with these two is really awesome and says a lot, not only about the program, but about him. And just, I, I love the whole thing. It's a historic thing. We have to, we have to give it a shout out. So there it is. Speaking of historic, I don't know if it's a record, but David Estevez, uh, you, you highlighted it earlier. The, the yardage total for that senior uh, for Wesleyan is just a, a really interesting story as that team is now in line undefeated to go against Williams undefeated. I, I mean, we're starting to see the NESCAC race take shape. And Estevez was not a name we really thought much of coming into the season. Not that we didn't think of his play. We just didn't know of him to this degree. And look at him now. Yeah, I mean, we always kind of knew over the last few years that the NESCAC was really becoming a true RPO, you know, dual threat quarterback type of league. We saw that two years ago with uh, Will Jernigan and Middlebury and the, and the job that he did and getting them to 9-0. and But Estevez, man, with almost 500 yards of total offense, I, I looked through some different box scores. I was looking at, you know, North Central, you know, all these lopsided scores seeing like did any quarterback come close to that i mean i know the crazy thing is is that the you know, the, the qb that um that estevez was able to best even though quarterbacks don't really play against each other it's defenses and all that but michael berluti from tufts had almost the same amount of total yardage so what a crazy what a crazy game that was you had almost 900 yards of offense from the quarterbacks alone but estevez keeps his team in a, a very tight uh, NESCAC race with almost 500 yards, three touchdowns. Hey, you know, he was my offensive uh, player. And, and you know, it's funny now, Frank, looking on the defensive side of the ball, this is the second week in a row that Greg Thomas and I have agreed on the defensive player <laughs> of the week. So I might have to wait and listen until, you know, what he picks on ATN to try to, to do something different, but you know, even though I know he, I know Spencer Kieran won the special teams player for the Centennial Conference for the punt block. He really was the catalyst for that defense to to hold in that sixty point per game Hopkins offense, and so he it felt right to put him in here as a defensive player, even though there were guys um, like Cavetti for MIT who you saw who had seventeen tackles, um, Karen from Husson had seventeen tackles. There were. Definitely guys who had more stops, but as far as like a big game from week seven goes, I don't think anyone really stepped up as big as Kieran did. So he's my uh, week seven defensive MVP. I, I want to point out one thing here, and uh, it's reminiscent. Ian Barr, linebacker from Westminster that we've yeah. had on the show and, uh, you know, sung the accolades of our defensive player of the season from the spring. Kieran reminds me of a lot of him in terms of he's not that prototypical big linebacker body. He, if you look at the video of him and I talking, I'm 5'9 and, you know, 170, 172 pounds probably soaking wet right now. And he's obviously bigger than me, but he's not huge. He's playing outside his frame, really, when you get down to it and playing it well. I mean, between the punt return, uh, or punt block return for touchdown, the seven tackles, he's a, a real team leader. I love these linebackers that just have that level of heart to play so out of their, you know, prototypical situation that we talk about all the time of what a linebacker should look like or needs to be, especially if you're going NFL and this and that. Spencer Karen, 
is playing with a lot of heart out there, and I think that's why Nate Milne loves him. Uh, his brother uh, played with him back a couple of years ago. Yeah. I saw an article about that as well. So, you know, it, it's a great story and a great effort by him. And like I said, Ian Barr, same thing. He's, what, 5'8", I think, uh, and, you know, not a huge guy. Obviously, you know, pumps yeah. some good iron and all that stuff, but these guys really deserve the kudos. This is Division three at its best to me. These are guys that would not stand a chance probably in Division One, or at least wouldn't get a chance in Division One. but they're showing that they are made of moxie beyond what you would assume or expect. Love that. That is Division Three. What is not Division Three, on the other hand, is when we get a note from UW-Platteville when we request game video, and up front state that we are not trying to tool on their quarterback who made a mistake a clear mistake and you know want to show how he even got there how did a Platteville team with one win coming into that game almost take down the one loss a team of lacrosse number 11 ranked team in the country right now who's might yep. make the playoffs or at least at that point, I think I think they got nixed a little bit on the uh, this week's poll. But still, you get the point. They're ranked versus completely unranked. They lost to ETBU to Platteville yeah. early in the season. So um, we we got an initial denial, but we weren't sure if it was a clear denial or if it was a third party ownership of rights things, which happens. We, we had to deal with that with Westminster versus Grove City, but we got it to work in the end. And the answer was, no, it's a clear denial. And we posted the response on Twitter. Okay. This was based on their protection of the student athlete and trying to get the focus off him. I get it. Okay. I get that to a certain degree. And maybe it's worth picking up a phone, maybe not the chancellor of the school, but somebody to say, okay, what are your real intentions? Or can we limit what you do with that? And you know what? We're reasonable people enough to say, sure, okay. Not to say that D3 Football didn't run it on their Twitter right away on Saturday, and they did, certainly didn't get a takedown notice for that uh, video. Okay, so everybody's no. seen the mistake of kneeling instead of spiking the ball. But you know what, folks? Let's run through a few things. How many times do schools nerf videos when, uh, let's say... A long snapper has a bad, bad late snap that may cost the game. Or a kicker misses a kick. Or a touchdown being scored because, look, every touchdown that gets scored means that somebody's blown coverage somehow, some way. Okay, For every success that occurs on the football field, unfortunately, there's a failure on the football field. That's just football, folks. Yeah. Okay? And... Yep. You've got a quarterback that threw for over 400 yards and two touchdowns. If not over for him, 450. Yeah. <laughs> if not for him, that team would not have been in that position in the first place. And I love the outpouring of support from the coach and everybody surrounding that school. I'm sure there are some jerks out there that have said the stupidest things possible, not thinking about the reality of the whole situation. And they can go to hell as far as I'm concerned, for saying stuff like that under the circumstances. But remember, and we, we tried to reach out to him to see if he had anything to uh, say, and we didn't get a response right away. Jake Hibben, Wheaton, spiked the ball against St. John's after 
the touchdown that Wheaton scored that would have at least gotten them into overtime. Uh, set back 15 yards, the extra point. They get two opportunities at it, and he, they miss them both. It would have been a routine extra point probably to tie the game. And so he had to wear that for two years. And he's back out there enjoying himself and enjoying the game of football. So in a situation where it's team sports and individual performances that comprise them, we have to celebrate both the successes and the failures. And we cannot hide from those things because to hide from them sends the wrong message. To nerf video from public view isn't fair to the lacrosse team that won the game or the Platteville players that succeeded in that game, including your quarterback. Maybe it's our job to underscore the fact that this guy rocked for 59 minutes and 56 seconds of a game. Don't just focus on the four seconds from hell. But we, we're not going to be able to do that because a school decided, a Wisconsin public school who has a, an obligation under public records law to hand over video and other documents. Uh, video is a type of document for purposes yeah. like this. Okay, We could foil for this video. We're not going to. Yeah, they, they, they broke the law, basically. Yeah, I mean, if they want to, you really want to say, like, oh, yeah, we could say, hey, what are you guys doing? Yeah, it's a denial of a public record, uh, but, you know, we didn't go through the official channels, whatever, because we shouldn't have to under the circumstances. We're trying to do the right thing, and we explained it. So to Platteville and any other school that's thinking of doing the similar here, don't. It doesn't help anybody. We, we bust our butts on this show to go through every box score, Every amount of video we can find to make sure the video even exists and even reach out to get the video when it doesn't. And thankfully, 99% of the time, we get cooperation, embracing. We trust you guys with it, and we've proven why we should be trusted along the way. This, this moment is that line crosser for me. Again, I feel horrible for the player and what he's had to endure. This is why sports psychology is a real thing, and make sure you get him to a sports psychologist so that yeah. he can talk it through and talk it out. But you know what? He's going to live to play another day, and eventually there are going to be other things for him to think about and remember, and he's going to overcome adversity as long as you let him overcome adversity in a natural way. That's the thing. Let him do it naturally with a little bit of what exists out there in terms of the tools we have with psychology and other stuff. That truly exists for a reason. Let's go to undefeated teams remaining here. Region 1 was 6, but 3 of them are from the NASCAC. So for the purposes of playoff focus and view, 3 in Region yeah. 1, 4 in Region 2, 5 in Region 3, 2 in Region 4. Um, the only loss being to a 93 school for DePaul, uh, remember, in that situation. Three in Region Butler, 5 yeah. and four in Region 6. Again, lacrosse, who was Grand Valley State. Uh, so Yep, D2 team. That, yeah. Yep, so for D3 undefeateds, uh, we'll call it. Uh, we have 3, 7, 12, 14, 21, plus the three NESCACs. Um, let's go, if I can switch my screen here real quick, let's go region by region to look at the playoff races. 
and you'll notice on these you'll have dash ones. Those are basically a loss, an and one basically uh, after uh, their record. So because we really do look at losses more than anything else in Division Three, where we're looking at playoff worthy yeah. teams. Okay, so a team that's and O is obviously in a better position than a team at and one. So in the CCC, you brought it up earlier, Endicott. Salve. If Endicott wins that game, we get some distancing, obviously, because Endicott's already beaten Western New England. If Endicott loses to Salve, Regina, we have the merry-go-round beginning to form here with one loss, one loss, yeah. one loss. And so, can I ask you a quick question match. about uh, Region One, Frank? I want to sure. see if you what you think about a a statement that will be coming out. Um, I, I got asked to join um, Matt Noonan's Noontime podcast again. And and one of the things that when I was kind of racking my brain through what's going on in New England is that there's a slight possibility, and, I'm, and call me crazy, but could you see a 9-1 Endicott that runs the table from here on out possibly hosting a first-round game, depending on how things shake out? I mean, we've seen in the past where uh, a team like Springfield a couple years back, they were 10-0, and obviously, so that's a little different story. But they hosted another New England team that came in. And given the fact that there's so little um, undefeated teams at this point, I could see if Endicott runs a table that maybe, assuming that they put in to host and all that, like there could be a game there in, in Beverly in, in Week 12. I think the answer is no, and we actually had this discussion on the D3 football side of things a little bit about uh, even a 9-1 RPI team, which I think would be more deserving of hosting than a 9-1 Endicott team if it came down to it uh, based on schedule strength. And the answer is when you look at the fact that Mount Union most likely gets a one seed and needs matchups inside a geographic bracket, and then you have possibly yeah. a Cortland and a, an Ithaca or a Union also is undefeated. Now you're, up, you're you've counted out three teams basically right there. And if DelVal goes also undefeated, well then you can't. It's just flat out you can't. And so there will be stronger one-loss teams, for instance, in possibly the Centennial Conference that would justify. But I can't see in the nine and one yeah. Endicott team. Hosting. It would be a real reach. Here's the one asterisk I'll say. We never know if there's a hosting problem, like one we raised about Del Val uh, last week with the thing that happened outside the locker room against Kings. Yeah. So there may be the potential for a flip on that type of situation, but I wouldn't bank on it in the first round. So, no, I don't think 9-1 Endicott currently would host unless we see carnage through the rest of the Region 1, Region 2, Region 3, Region 4 zone that's going to comprise one to one and a half brackets right there, if that makes any sense to you. Um, ECFC, Anna Maria versus Gallaudet, it looks like where it's going to come from, the MAC, DelVal, Widener, which ends the season for those teams in Week 11. Mascac, Tom Kelly, and I suggested this to D3 Football that that should be the discussion or their article of the week uh, in Region 1 at least. Tom Kelly, who didn't expect to be head coach, he was athletic director and was happy doing He's retiring, it. retiring basically from football. <laughs> and then his coach leaves just before the beginning of the season. They looked horrendous at certain points. And now they are yeah. basically ripe to be 
the team that wins the MASCAC right now. They still have Bridgewater State to face, obviously. But just sure. to be in this position, I, I, I would not have even begun to predict it. I would have said UMass Dartmouth, maybe Bridgewater State, Framingham State, not so much. Wow. Maybe Wisconsin even. No, it's Framingham State right now sitting atop the perch. Congratulations to them for what they've been able to do so far. Uh, a lot more to go. And the new Mac. Catholic, Merchant Marine, Springfield. Merchant Marine faces both those teams in the next two weeks. That's going to be yeah. something else. Uh, I mean, they have Coast Guard after a bye for their ninth game. But to match 1968, they have to beat Catholic, who we've talked about just a couple weeks ago, Coach Gut and company. It's going to be a tough game. It's a game that is on that list of games. Maybe I should attend this weekend. We'll see what happens there. Region 2, Susquehanna has to still play Muhlenberg and Johns Hopkins. Muhlenberg looks as good as they've been in a while. And I wonder, I mean, that game in Sealands Grove in a couple weeks is probably a game I should be attending. I will say it flat out right now, unless something happens this weekend. I, I think Susquehanna Muhlenberg is a game that should be attended if we have any integrity in this whole situation. Cortland and Brockport, uh, Cortland's beaten Brockport, so they have a game essentially in hand in the EA, and I think that's going to be probably your winner is Cortland. The Liberty League, who the hell knows what's going to happen here. Uh, Hobart beating (laughs) RPI, we thought we were going to lose a team from this race. Nope, we still have four teams. Thoroughly involved right now. And too many games to talk about there still. And Jack, Salisbury. I, I mean, Kane maybe gives them a game. It's Salisbury to me. I, I, I don't. That's this weekend. We'll see what happens. But yeah, yeah I, I think the Seagulls got it wrapped up. Probably we'll see. They win. They're in. I think that's uh, pretty much what it comes down to this yes. weekend. And in the pack, W and J, uh, they still face this weekend Westminster. This is a game that I'm thinking about going to, which is an eight-hour road trip. I will tell you, but it's worth, I think, going out there for a game like this because if Westminster wins. Then we kind of have all hell breaking loose in the pack. If W and J wins, then it comes down to the game between W and J and Grove City, which I think is the following week, and yeah. that's then that's your pack race at that point. So this is a defining game coming up this weekend in the pack. In Region Three, Mary Hard Mailer sitting at the in the catbird seat right now, but Howard Payne's still to come for them. Yep. After that Southwestern game, maybe that's not as threatening. I don't know, but obviously they have to win out here to you know feel comfortable. Does Mary Harden Baylor, uh, Harden Simmons is a team that needs to be a little bit concerned still with Howard Payne also on their schedule and no room for error at all. Odak, Washington Lee, you can't feel comfortable in the Odak though if you're Washington Lee with Randolph Macon sitting there. Yes, uh, you know what happened in their game, but Ferrum as well. It's it's interesting to see how this ODAC is landing. Um, I mean, just I'm looking back here. I want to I confirm something that I'm forgetting, which believe it or not happens about 18 well, times a day. Washington Lee has the has the had the one point win over Randolph Macon, and Randolph it's Macon still plays Ferrum. Ferrum. So yep, yeah. If, so there's so Washington still Lee still plays Ferrum. Yep. Yeah, that's the that could be a potential tiebreaker if if Farron can somehow beat the generals or a three-way one loss 
merry-go-round again, which then we have to look at what yep. the tiebreaker is. In the SAA, pretty simple. It's Birmingham Southern or Trinity. They play each other coming up soon. Uh, and in the USA South, yeah, that's actually a week ten game. That when you talk about eight hours, eight hours away, that's on a weekend where I could theoretically get to Birmingham, Alabama, from Florida. Do it. Maybe. Maybe we'll see what happens. Uh, in the USA yeah. South, Huntingdon uh, pretty much has uh, the game edge plus because they've beaten Brevard already. So I, yep. I, again, I, I see them pretty much as it. Region four. The HCAC Heartland is just wide open. Mount St. Joseph, Rose Holman probably is what this comes down to eventually. MIAA, yep. Hope, and Trine are the two teams that are kind of sitting atop. They're trying, who didn't look so great to start the season in out-of-conference play, is still in the conversation. Who knew? Yeah. And the NCAC, we talked about DePaul already, but they still have the Monambilla game against Wabash, and so there's a lot to still be said in that. That could be another three-way merry-go-round scenario if Wabash were to win there. Yep. OAC, Mount Union, obviously the game against Baldwin-Wallace will tell us what we need to know for the rest of that. that that's going to be that. Yep. Regions 5, ARC, Central Dubuque, still have to match up. CCIW, it's North Central's to lose all the way. Uh, yep. Midwest Conference, it's going to be Lake Forest versus Monmouth. And NACC, it's going to be Benedictine versus Aurora, with probably Aurora having the edge if I had a guess right now, but we'll see. If Aurora were to lose that game, then they're out. There's too many losses to talk about for yeah. them, which is surprising when you think about it. Region 6, yeah. St. John's and Bethel, but there is a championship game there, so anything could still happen. Northwest Conference, Linfield has a huge edge there, so it's theirs to lose. Redlands Chapman coming up this weekend, I believe, for the Skyac. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. Uh, that's going to be a big game for the Skyac. The Wyack, uh, you have this uh, lacrosse game against uh, Whitewater in Week 10 coming up. That's going to be crucial for that uh, conference. And the UMAC, it's Greenville and Minnesota Morris. So we basically are spotting what the games to watch remaining are in each of these conferences or in a lot of cases where we could create complete and total havoc with what's left as well yeah i mean so there are a lot of cases where that could still be a case where you have three or four teams still to talk about i'm going to put up this slide about pool c i want you to give your take here if you were on the committee right now which five of these teams would you be looking at if we just ended the season today well, I think, you know, starting off, probably the first one up would be Wheaton if their only loss is to the defending national champions and number one ranked team, North Central. That would be number one. Number two would probably be Wisconsin Lacrosse if they end up 9-1 and one with their only loss to number two or number three, Wisconsin Whitewater, the runner-up from 2019. Uh, from there, You'd probably have to shift into Region 3 if, if Hardin-Simmons uh, and or Howard Payne uh, finish 9-1 and one with their only loss uh, to undefeated and also number 2 or number 3, Mary Hardin-Baylor. They're probably a lock. So really at this point, you're only going to have about two other teams that you're going to have a chance to pick. And honestly, Frank, I think the only place that you can really go to after that is going to be Region 2. Uh, between the Centennial Liberty League and PAC. And the bummer is, is that there's going to be a really good team that gets left, maybe even two teams that get left on the, left in the lurch. 
there's a possibility for the Centennial and the Liberty League to have multiple nine and one teams in theory. Um, you know, some that'll get in through Pool A, but there could be a nine and one team from these conferences that deserves to get to the playoffs, but they just won't. Um, w and J from the Pack, if they somehow uh, lose a game either to maybe Grove City or to Westminster, I think they could still slip in as a nine and one team. They might be the ones that bump out um, a, a very deserving Centennial or Liberty League team. I dropped my pen in complete uh, the agony of uh, that thought right there. Sorry about that. <laughs> yes, no, it, it's an actual good point. Something, because- some there's going to be a team that's going to get left out of the tournament that's going to feel really bad. Um, and well, it Baldwin happens every Wallace. year, unfortunately. Baldwin Wallace is going to sit there saying, come on, why not us? We're in the OAC. The only yeah. team we lose to is Mount Union, and we, you know, we, we beat all these other teams. The interesting thing is you may have a valid head-to-head if Washington and Jefferson were to, uh, or not a head-to-head, but a, a comparison if Washington and Jefferson were to lose a game yes. and then be in the Pool C discussion because they both play John Carroll. Yeah, absolutely. Point. And I think that's that's why I would give the edge to W&J in that situation, uh, particularly if their win was, you know, a little better or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. We'll the head-to-head see. could give them the edge. Yeah, yeah, in, indeed. So, I mean, I, I agree with you for the most part there about how I would at least order the, the first three. Uh, and then, you, like you said, it, it's kind of a crapshoot from there. If we were to end things right yeah. now with assumptions of who should win certain games or not, uh, you know, we'll assume Mount Union beats Paul and Wallace for these purposes. Yeah. And then to talk about would be W&J, two really tough games still left for W&J. If they go perfect this season, they have darn right earned it. That could be a team that deserves to host as much as anybody at that point if they go to oh, yeah. So think about that for a minute. Uh but otherwise, uh, very good work on all these, uh, JB, because a lot of people have been asking us these questions, who to watch and who to look for down the line. And the answer is, some conferences, we do know who to look for and who to watch. Some conferences, we have clear leaders who have a game in hand and then some because they've already beaten the team in second. And then some conferences that were like, yeah, good luck. We don't know. And we won't know for a couple more weeks at least uh, yeah. how it's shaping up. Yep. So that's the way it is. Okay, uh, we're going to have our Friday show as normal. Uh, not sure who we'll have on yet, uh, if we'll have uh, a guest. And uh, as we said, we're going to try to figure out a way to still handle our Gallaudet situation we uh, discussed earlier. But last thoughts, JB, on week seven, we said a lot here. What's left? Well, like I said, I think you know we learned some things about um, – kind of where we've been and and where we're heading i think you know going into week eight we're trying to get a little more clarity and there are some opportunities to see that with catholic versus merchant marine endicott versus salve regina dean versus anna maria um you know if the amcats really want to make a push for that ecfc title they're going to have to beat the former champs uh, westminster washington jefferson is a huge game um, Bellhaven, who's looked really strong, maybe they're going to knock Howard Payne out of the race. Um, you know, Rippon's going to play Chicago in sort of a, a Midwest uh, kind of runner-up thing. And then out in Region 6, one of the key games I would look at, Frank, is UW-Stout versus UW-Lacrosse because Stout is 
very strong team. They're five and one in that in that conference as well, and so they're going to look to make a statement win for themselves and maybe knock lacrosse out of that pool C picture and maybe put the insert themselves into it with a big win this weekend. Yep, you're right. Uh, it's about five and one as we're shown on the screen. Uh, Whitewater six and zero. Oh. Uh, Lacrosse five and one, River Falls five and one, uh, but the conference uh, is three and zero, three and zero, two and one, two and one for those four teams. And so there are teams still in the conversation in the WIAC, but again, Whitewater and Lacrosse seem to have the edge because of being undefeated currently. And we'll see where it goes from there ultimately. Join us Friday. We'll have more to talk about. If you have questions about anything we've talked about here, including hosting rights and or hosting possibilities, hit us on Twitter. We'll answer them on our live show this Friday. Um, this live show may be uh, interesting in me heading out the door right after the live show if we choose the W&J game. Give us some input. Where should we be going? Because we have viable candidates within reach in many different yeah. locations this weekend. So... That Endicott Salve game, the Merchant Marine Catholic game, Washington and Jefferson, Westminster, and others. Where should we go? You let us know. But thanks for joining us. We will talk to you soon here on In the Huddle.